Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Today on Everyday Theology, we have um, a, a bit of a special episode in light of what's going on, you know, in our world today with something like the coronavirus and COVID nineteen. So today with us we have uh, Dr. Kapik, who's at Covenant, and he is an uh, sorry, the professor of theological studies there. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Kapik. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, if if you wouldn't mind, you know, maybe give our our listeners an idea about who you are, kind of your life journey, your story, and how you have things to say about a time like this. Yeah, thanks. Um, th- those are funny questions. Who are you, right? <laughs> um, well, existentially. <laughs> yeah, uh, who am I, I? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm originally from California. My wife and I um, both grew up there and we haven't lived there in 26, almost 27 years, but um, we're from that uh, part of the country. Um, I became a Christian in high school, uh, went on to, to Wheaton College, and then went to seminary and did a PhD overseas at University of London. And I've been teaching at Covenant College, teaching theology since 2001. Um, and my guess is the reason why you gave me a call is because uh, one of my recent books is exploring the topic of suffering and trying to think through that. Um, so I, I'm yeah. not sure where, where you want to go, but I'll, I'll <laughs> you. I, it's, it's a hard thing to, to know where to go in a time, I think like this in so many ways yeah. when people are asking a lot of questions. And so maybe one of the first things I want to ask since you did this book called Embodied Hope on Suffering is how should you know, there's a lot of responses, I think, to Christians right now in light of suffering or fear mm. in, in kind of times of trouble. And so in your book, you know, you kind of lay out some ideas about suffering and how to how to have hope through that. So maybe if you can ke- kind of help our listeners think about what what do we think about in terms of suffering in a time like a pandemic or a virus such as this? Yeah. You know, suffering is a is a complicated phenomena, um, and Christians have not always done well thinking about it. Um, the I guess I hadn't fully answered your first question. The reason I wrote about suffering and that relevant topic is uh, my wife had cancer in two thousand eight, and um, after surgeries, uh, she eventually recovered. But then in two thousand ten. Um, it's a long story, but was driving on the side of the road and all of a sudden her leg wasn't working right. And it began oh, a series of things. And 
we thought it was a tumor at first, but it ends up she's had she has um, erythromyalgia and, and some other stuff going on. It took us six years in the Mayo Clinic to figure it out. But all of that to say, since that that time in June of 2010 to this day, there's not a day that goes by that my wife doesn't experience pretty serious uh, pain and fatigue and difficulty. So it forced, I wasn't going to write on suffering. I wasn't going to think about it, but it became such a serious part of our everyday lives to kind of think through it. My my wife looks great. And this, this is all relevant to, to what, what you just asked. She looks great, yeah. appears fine, and she's very tough, doesn't like to draw attention uh, to her pain and suffering. Um She's the one who encouraged me to think about it, reflect on it, eventually write upon it. Um, but she doesn't draw attention to it. So it, it, it's, but it's a, it's part of our everyday lives. And some of that is relevant to what we're experiencing right now, because for most people, you look around and everything seems fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but all of a sudden when it's someone you love and you start to see the signs of the difficulty and, uh, it, things just start to feel and look a little different. And so part of what happens with suffering is we can live in the illusion that everything is fine. One of the surprises about suffering is we can start to see things that have always been there, but we've been ignoring. Yeah, yeah. And so I think uh, I am not someone who, and I want to explore this more with you, I'm not someone who wants to make light of suffering. I don't want to make excuses for suffering, and I don't want to explain it away. But it is a time for us to reflect and to think afresh about ourselves and about God. So um, as you say that, um, I think in Embodied Hope, you kind of help us um, as the readers kind of understand uh, the new normal. Mm. Um, and even when that new normal just doesn't feel right. And so given what's going on right now in our country, the whole COVID-19, how do you maybe help our listeners understand that there is a new normal and how to how to deal with it and how to think through what's happening? Right. We're getting ready for Easter services. And now all of a sudden, you know, the gatherings um, can be no more than 50. Mm. And so even for some of our pastor uh, listeners and your regular listeners, okay, man, that means there's a new normal now. Like, you know, no restaurants, no going out. Like, I feel like my freedom's being restricted. So what are some things that uh, you can share with our listeners to, to help them understand that? Yeah, there is a new normal. This is kind of like how you you uh, become acclimated to it. Yeah, that's that, that's a good that's a good question. I it, it is a fascinating thing because you know I'm someone who loves ESPN. I love sports, and um, one of the things I've noticed, that, you know, as as all the listeners know, all the sports have been shut down. You, you, you know, all three of us teach at colleges. They've all been shut down, all the professionals. Yeah. And, and one of the things you hear that has really caught my attention is people are saying, I need my distractions. And they're not there. Huh. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we are all so prone to distraction. But all of a sudden, the sports are down. From what I understand, you know, Jimmy Fallon, <laughs> uh, Steve Colbert, all these people aren't able to record live. And all of a sudden, a lot of our regular distractions are taken away from us. And I think one of the things, especially American evangelicals and just people in America, we struggle with is we are we are terrified of silence and boredom. Mm. Um, And so it's kind of a strange phenomenon because we work too much. We all feel stressed out and too busy. And yet part of the reason we feel that is any moment we have. 
we fill up with distraction. And now all of a sudden, a lot of those distractions are taken away. Yeah. And we start to feel exposed. You know, I, I found myself, my wife and I, because of our work, have had to travel a, a bunch over the last week and a half. And all of a sudden, we're not traveling. And we're some of the people that have to basically stay tight for right now to make sure we don't have anything. And, you know, we have teenagers because we were married nine years before we had them. And all of a sudden, I'm finding I'm not as patient as I think of myself. Right? <laughs> uh, and and it's there's some honest self-exposure here that in the silence, in the boredom, in the mundaneness and the small spaces, I think there's an opportunity to actually think, OK, what what is the state of my soul? How am I? And it's an opportunity to actually be reacquainted with God. To actually spend yeah. time not rushing through things, but actually spend time with God in some sustained ways that are a little different. Um, we are to pray without ceasing, but there are different ways of being with God. So I think there there is a space here, but let's be honest, it's terrifying for a lot of us. Yeah, I, I love, I mean, two, two points here that I want to explore. One being what you said, you know, in a moment such as this where... Like, for instance, I, I know of no one with um, COVID-19, though I have a few people in my life who may have it, but they right. can't be tested. So, you know, we don't know yet. Um, what you said was really, I think, profound. And we almost want to explore that a little bit, that sometimes that in, an, in a time like this, we are exposed to the sufferings of other people and really kind of profound ways that we've often have been able to distract ourselves from. Mm -hmm. And what should we do with that when all of a sudden we're made aware of the suffering of other people that we've often just ignored? Yeah. I, I, one of my prayers is that this will actually make us start to become people who listen again. Um, Hmm. We just don't listen very well to one another. Um, Yeah. And part of that's a distraction. And um, I, I still think, um, you know, we're recording this on Monday, March 16th at this point, more people are taking it seriously, but I think a lot of people still really aren't because I don't think it's real. They're yeah. just some numbers, but once it's people, you know, and there's a real name, right. Then, then it feels very different. And then all of a sudden you look at your actions very differently. And, and it is interesting. I mean, this virus and contagion that we have to be careful about, you do start to think, how does my sin spread? How do I, huh. how do I affect wow. other people? Um, like I said, even in my own family, when I feel like I'm being short and, you know, snippy in ways, um, because I, I'm being exposed, I'm there, there's things. And this just, um, in, in embodied hope, one of the chapters that I ended up writing that I did not anticipate thinking about or writing on, in the suffering book was on confession. And my, my concern was if I start talking about confession, everyone's going to think I'm saying, if you're suffering, it's because you sinned and God is right. Right. Yeah. Very explicit throughout the book. That is not what I'm saying. And we can, we can talk more about that if you want. Oh, I mean, I had people from my Pentecostal tradition. If you had a, if you had a cold, yeah, go you, get saved. Like right. <laughs> something's and, wrong. So right, right, right. the correlation is there, isn't it? Yeah, and I and I want to be. I want us to be really, really careful about thinking through some of those things. Having said that, 
one of the interesting phenomena I found when I was interviewing people and listening and, and exploring this, and even in our own experience, is there is a strange phenomena I found again and again, that when you are in, especially people who are physically suffering, they become more aware of sin. And this is where I want to be real careful. I am not saying they are more sinful. What right. I am saying is in their state of vulnerability, they become more attentive to their sin and the brokenness in the world. Yeah. And so, kind of the best way I can think of an analogy is, you know, a two-year-old, we talk about terrible twos, when they're irritated and they throw things around and they yell and we're all like, oh, that's terrible and you need to work on that, right? Um, but when you're 40, we're often not any different than the terrible two. The only <laughs> thing that's changed is our ability to socially cover, right? We've learned, we've kind of wow. learned etiquette. But that's yeah, not, that yeah. doesn't mean our hearts have changed, right? We right. may not throw a chair around, but we're enraged. And so, so when you imagine that you have, and, and then you find people, once they get to a certain age, sometimes because of physical difficulties, beloved saints, sometimes all of a sudden you'll see things in them that are painful to see. Hmm. They will say things or do things that that hurt and are surprising. And, yeah. and, and part of what I want to say is rather than being so judgmental, part of what happens with pain and suffering that exposes us is you're like in one of those situations. If you have a terrible toothache, you don't have, and it just hurts all the time. You don't have a lot of reserve to just act good. <laughs> it's all taken up. Right. And so anyways, I do think one of the gifts people who are suffering can give us is a more honest assessment of reality. And a lot of times it's not that they're just looking at their own sin. They just feel the weight of the world. It's like their systems have slowed down and they see things that the rest of us are not seeing. Yeah. As a, maybe a, a social example, I think that cause it's, it's a confusing social example, but one nonetheless is um, the amount of people that we see hoarding toilet paper. Right in this time, right? Like it's, it's why, I mean, I make a joke cause we're in Florida, right? And whenever any kind of crisis happens, the first thing that Floridians do is go buy all the water. <laughs> like it doesn't affect the tap water at all. You'll, right. you'll be fine. But we're right. so trained with hurricanes to go buy right. water that any crisis, just go grab water. Yeah. Um, but I think what you're saying there, you know, is, is actually being played out in even just kind of like, odd scenarios such as like, I have to go buy a bunch of toilet paper to protect me and mine. Right. Um, and, and, and forget other people. And in some sense, if we were to actually kind of pay attention, we, we as Christians can recognize actually when we're hoarding, we're being anything other than Christ-like. Right. When we're caring for ourselves over the other, um, we are, we are, not being the canonic example of Christ by any means. Um, and I think that's it. Like what you're saying is so true that in times of suffering, we are, we are made vulnerable to our own um, sinfulness or at least made aware in yeah. ways that without the suffering, we may not have ever paid attention. I may not have ever known that I was inclined to run to the store and buy six packs of toilet paper. <laughs> right. Um, 
until I see a moment where a crisis is happening and now all of a sudden I'm having this internal battle. I've got a pack of toilet paper. I don't need it. Someone else needs it more than I do. Let them have it. Um, but it's, it's, you don't really, I mean, if it was just normal Tuesday, normal Monday, I would never think to myself like my hoarding, you know, desires by any means. Right. So Dr. Kapik, um, Embodied Hope, you kind of share kind of a little bit what you were talking about, that pain robs us, right, of the ability to keep it together and Mm. covers, you know, our, what you call our darkness. And that the difficulty is it's cruel to leave sufferers to their own resources, to battle the accusation and the guilt. But, you know, for our listeners in this time where, you know, the CDC is is telling us not to gather, where, Mm. you know, no more than 50 together, uh, Mm. where restaurants are closing in different parts of the country. What do you tell our our listeners to, to do practically to still embody hope and to think about the other, to think about the brethren, to really not leave them to themselves. But how do we bring hope? So what are some practical ways, right? I know social um, distance is what we're trying to practice at the moment, but as a body of believers and as Christians, how do we embody hope to people in our communities that, that really feel hopeless maybe, or even fearful? Yeah, thank you. That is such a good question. And we do need to make that turn. Let me say a couple things in, in preparation to the practical. But if I don't get practical, then then call call me to it. Um, it's very, and I so appreciate you said this, because while I'm talking about a greater awareness of the brokenness and even our own sin, the whole point of that is not to feel bad about ourselves, but to realize the goodness of grace and yeah. the depth of God's love. But here's the trick, and this is what I think Ben is alluding to. All If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know the true answer is God loves you and he is full of grace. Not, so saying those sentences to yourself over and over and over again, ha- surprisingly often have limited effect. <laughs> um, yeah. DJ yeah. Bonhoeffer talks about this. So this is actually part of why we're so dependent upon one another. Bonhoeffer says, why is it, ask yourself, why is it often easier to confess your sin to God than to your brother or sister? And it's very interesting what he says, because we often find that like to actually name specific sins and tell a sister or a brother about them, surprisingly much harder than God. And Bonhoeffer says, it's not just because you think God is nicer. It's because you actually, you're not really praying to him. (laughs) It's like, it's not real. And so similarly, it's very hard to believe his forgiveness is real. So Bonhoeffer yeah. says Protestants threw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we should still practice a sense of confession where we confess our needs and hurts and sins to one another. And, and what he says is by looking in the eyes of the other and speaking truthfully about your sin and brokenness. Then you can receive a word of grace from from the other in the name of yeah. God. And that doesn't mean to say to that person who tells you something, you go, oh, it's not that bad. No, 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 that's not grace. It's I hear you. Yes, but Christ loves you, right? The Father right. delights in you. And, and Bonhoeffer, I think, is exactly right. It somehow becomes more believable when it comes from another embodied human being. Um, it's it's almost as if if we say it to God, we 
don't almost feel the need to change, or we might have that inclination for yeah. a moment to be like, oh, I, I, I should change. I shouldn't do this again. But once you start confessing it to one another, all of a sudden you are now putting yourself kind of out there. You're, you're actually saying, look, I'm confessing this because I see it's a problem and I don't want this any longer. Yeah, and, and the surprise is that vulnerability opens you up to receiving a level of grace that you tend not to be able to appreciate or receive. It's yeah. partly because it's like we don't really think our prayers are rising above the ceilings. So that gets to, to this question, though. When all of a sudden we're trying to practice social distancing and we need one another, and this is just one instance of how we need one another, how do we as the church get creative to be this grace for one another when we can't physically embrace when looking yeah. one another in the eye is more difficult. And, uh, and I think it's real. And I, I, you know, it's interesting. Technology here could be our friend. Um, I, I think things like texting people and offering brief words of prayer or encouragement. Um, I would encourage, you know, pastors and leaders in your church and anyone in your church, slowly go through your directory and pray for a certain number of people every day. And as you pray for them and think about their circumstances, don't hesitate to send a text or an email with a brief word of encouragement, with some concreteness and a word of grace. It will actually make them feel known and seen and valued even when you're not around. Um, al along with kind of seeing people, you know, I'm, I'm hearing beautiful stories of people and, and like church people who are recognizing the sufferings of others and trying to even find ways of engaging with it in, yeah. in this time. So like one, one beautiful story is that, you know, hearing some people who in their community, the elderly people are afraid to leave their house mm. and go to the grocery store. Um, because you know they're the most at risk right. in this moment, right. and and these people of this church are getting together to say, well, we're going to go buy your groceries for yes. us. Right. We'll bring them. We'll leave them at the doorstep. Yeah. Um. So we don't even have to like you know talk. Not that we don't want to talk, but that way. So that way, if you're afraid, we right. can do something here and bring you some groceries. Make sure that you're taken care of for the next few weeks. Right? Yeah, I, I love that you said that because I do think that is where. You know, I was focusing on one side, but you're exactly right. That the church needs to move to the vulnerable, uh, the poor, the marginalized, praying for prisoners, and those concrete acts. That's what the church looks like. It looks like a generous body. So, how can we be generous even when it within these structures? Yeah, and I think I think that kind of plays into if there's so much, especially with this, and here's like another kind of area maybe we need to move into is this idea of fear mm. that in terms of kind of like great moments of suffering or the possibilities of suffering that we tend to embody a lot of fear mm -hmm. um, of the unknown and, and fear of what could be that that these kind of examples like bringing people groceries who are in need of groceries and finding a way of social distancing while also taking care of other people. Right. And having this kind of uh, imagination to say, how can I do it best? Um, actually helps abate fear that people have. Yeah. 
because the fear comes, I mean, again, since all of us are at college campuses, I mean, we had a lot of students who were afraid, mainly because there was no, we didn't have any, you know, the virus around our campus or spreading around campus, but students just saw things changing around them so rapidly, like the situation changing yeah. so rapidly, it itself made them afraid. And the only thing that could kind of like abate that fear wasn't so much doing like what you said, like what we do with Bonhoeffer, you know, just proclaim, hey, don't worry about it. God's right, going right, to take right. care of it. Um, but actually embodying taking care of it, right. you know, um, whether it's actually reaching out to specific students or kind of engaging with them in different ways. Um, it actually helps kind of combat that fear that maybe so many are feeling in this time because yep. their world is so rapidly changing and all their distractions are being taken away from them. Yeah. Formula One got taken away from them. I'm <laughs> yeah. really bummed. And, and I think one of the biggest things that you shared, Dr. Kapik, in, uh, in your book is the faithfulness of God in all this. Yeah. And we as Christians and as believers and as followers of Christ, uh, we're called not to fix anything in this situation, uh-huh. but it's us faithfully and willingly walking alongside those who are in fear yeah. um, and just being there for them and walking alongside them. Um, that really brings about um, the faithfulness of God, um, that he is with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my great hopes whenever we as Christians, as the church as a whole, start to think about suffering is for various reasons in the last couple hundred years, when we think about suffering and evil, we think we have to defend God. And so it quickly becomes a discussion, a philosophical discussion about can God be good given that there are wicked things happening or evil or suffering. And interesting, that's that's just not how the Bible works, and that's not how the ancient church worked. The way, you know, Augustine's time, the the early um, church, when they dealt with, uh, well, they dealt with plagues, um, when they dealt with these kinds of difficulties, interestingly, it's not, sometimes we treat them like they're dumb, like they couldn't imagine, <laughs> you know, there could be a theological problem or something. But that's actually not what captured them, because they were captured by the Incarnation. So that's what I want for Christians in the church is to think more about the significance that God became man in his son, becoming incarnate. And so what does that mean? And so what the ancient church did is it responded to these things, not with answers, but with action. So they actually cared for the wounded. This is, um, you can read Rodney Stark's great book on the rise of Christianity and numerically and otherwise because it is a strange phenomenon. How did this little group become a world religion? And a lot of it had to do yeah. actually with the plague was one of the things. When everyone else left, these Christians, because they had a different horizon, because they believed in eternal life and a resurrection of the dead, they were willing to risk their lives to care for others. Now, I'm not telling listeners that they should they should be listening to medical advice, but we need to be ready. Right, right. it will be very clear with that. Listen right, right, right. to the health yeah. department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying to, to be unwise, but I am saying whatever it looks like, we need to be willing and ready to love. And so the way the church has responded to the question of evil is not primarily, I'm not against philosophical responses, but it's not primarily that. It's by acts of lament and acts of justice and mercy. And so one of the things the evangelical church needs to learn is how to, and, and the broader church, how to lament, how to just yeah. go, 
if this really does go bad, as bad as some are saying, the church needs to exercise muscles that it has not exercised in too long. So right. when the churches are just filled with happy songs, we have not prepared our people to sing the songs of lament, yeah. to mourn and to weep and not give cheap answers. And it may be that we're entering in a time when the church has to learn to lament more faithfully. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think... <sighs> I don't, I don't think we've ever taken seriously, uh, not that we haven't ever, but like in the, in the recent past, we haven't taken seriously the tension of the world that we live in, which is it's a world of pain and suffering. And there is a hope of a future return of Christ in which all of that is taken away. But while we're in the here and now, we are Christ representatives acting, acting as Christ to the world, the very person who died for the sins of the, who, who lived, who, you know, had ministry, who did, who took on the sufferings of other people. We often, I think, you know, we just want to pray and say, well, God, you just take care of it. I'm going to go back to my distraction. Right. Um, and all the while, this kind of embodied incarnational reality of Christ and following Christ is we take on this moment of enacting Christ to the world. And, and I'm, and I'm with you. I, you know, a lot of our students and, and you, you might have something similar, you know, will ask that big question, how does God exist? Um, and yet evil pervade within the world. And it's always in light of suffering. It's never like a pure philosophical question. It's always, you know, someone has, right. you know, a sickness or an illness or, you know, right now someone has Corona and why would God allow this to happen? But at the end of the day, really what they want is something some action to be taken place, not an answer. And I think we sometimes scratch our heads and we try to provide the answer as opposed to saying, well, how can I help? Yeah. Well, and part of, interestingly enough, and not to get distracted, but part of what is a surprise to people, if you really have the time, is to explore, why do you think this is all wrong, right? It's only Christians, when we have a transcendent norm, where, where God says, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he says, and this is not good, right? Yeah. And evil and death is not good. And sin and brokenness is not good. That we can look at the world and go, this is not good. This <laughs> is not just a vague, well, this is just how things are. So there actually often are, almost always in those kind of questions, smuggled in Christian assumptions about the way the world should work. Um, yeah, And so I'm not against those kind of discussions in a proper setting, but when people are suffering, that actually doesn't tend to, even though they may be using words about, does God exist? Is he good? I honestly think the question, the hard question for me and the book Embodied Hope is not, does God exist? I actually don't think that's a super hard question and I, people can get mad, but I just don't have the energy to talk about it. But I think the really hard theological question is, is he good? That's the pastoral oh. question. People, yeah. when they, even when they use the words, does God exist, are often really saying, is this God good? And right. That, I think, only can be answered not by trying to look at the world and explain events. It's only answered by looking at Jesus and seeing he really enters in, he lives, suffers, enters into smallness. He he can experience disease and brokenness and bad teeth. 
And all of that, because even though he's without sin, he enters a sinful world. Um, and then he ultimately suffers and dies and, and cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this God is not distant, but has entered in through his son to the brokenness and then rises. And it's only, I think, only by looking to Christ that we can make sense of the brokenness of the world and realize, oh, this God really is good. He is more tender and compassionate and holy than I ever imagined. Yeah. So so this is going to be a really big question, maybe to kind of start to wrap up our time. But so where's the hope in Corona? Like, where's the hope amidst this pandemic as you would kind of see it as that kind of word of encouragement for our listeners who might be afraid of, you know, stepping out their door or, you know, just afraid of what might happen in the future. How, what is that hope that you say, if there's a word of encouragement, this is what it is. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I would just say it is not in your circumstances or my circumstances. It is in the God who's the same yesterday, today and forever. And so the good God is the same God who is also the good redeemer, who is also the God who is the, is the good sustainer. And the Christian hope is actual resurrection of the dead, um, bodily resurrection. And that actually frees us not to disregard the material concerns of this world, but to invest with courage that eventually the new heavens and the new earth will come. It's not somewhere else. It's going to be a renewed earth with renewed risen people. um, Yeah. Because the creator didn't give up on his project of creation. And so even as we suffer through this, we are people of courage because we're Easter people and we should be able to love and hope and extend that love and hope to others because we have a different horizon and because Christ not only lived, but he died, but not just because he died, but because he rose. Yeah. Maybe there's no more apropos time for something like this to happen than the time of Easter to have that kind of hopeful forward orientation to look towards. Yeah. Um, It's honestly, part of it is Christians need to recover a defiant hope. We're not, we're just, things are pretty good. So we think, yeah, yeah, I hope in the resurrection. No, no. Defiant (laughs) hope. When you look in the face of death and evil and sickness and hurt. And when Paul says, you know, oh, death, where's your sting? We kind of say like, Paul's like, oh, death, where's your sting? No, no, no. I think with tears in his eyes, he thinks about the brokenness and people he's loving. And he says, no, no, no. Death, where is your sting? It's a defiance. It's not a happy clappy. It's a, total realistic view of the world but also a realistic view of the resurrection it's a it's a hopeful lament in yes. some ways oh absolutely yeah. um dr havoc thank you so much for being with us um i know this is going to be really helpful for a lot of our listeners if you would just wouldn't mind like maybe letting our listeners know where they can connect with you or where they can find in your if your books or even this book that we've been talking about um as they might need some help along the way in this kind of what our world's going to look like for the next few months sure yeah uh, you spell my na- my last name kappa k-a-p-i-c and if you type in kelly kappa you can 
you need to email me. Um, you can go to Covenant College's webpage. Um, I have a, a, a faculty webpage there. And for resources, the honest, the easiest thing is to look on Amazon um, for various books. But the one we've been talking about is Embodied Hope, a theological meditation on pain and suffering. And um, I hope it might be a small encouragement to some of your listeners. Yeah, and I think as of right now, like you said, if they get the ebook version, right? I think it's on sale. It sounds like it's like uh, I've even did that. Yeah, so now's now's the time, especially if you don't want to get a physical book, you want to get you know something online and immediately, so you don't have to touch oh, that's, something that's yeah, been that's, shipped. That's probably why they did it. I think it's like five ninety nine is what it said. Perfect. Yes. Well, um, thank you again so much for for doing this with us, and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Thank you.